Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. He's a dude, you know what I'm saying? Nicole and Jamal. For the Warriors, what does a successful season look like? Michael Porter, Aaron Gordon, Nicole Jokic, that's your starting front line. I'd say that they have very expensive taste. You're listening to the Chicken Nuggets Podcast. For real. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Chicken Nuggets Grilled. Today, we are doing a conversation with Mr. Jeff Morton. What's up, Jeff? How are you? What's up, Jenna? How are you doing? Well, you know, we could have met on better circumstances, couldn't we? Right, right. <laughs> I We were talking before we started recording about this, and I, I just... This is one of those S, SMH games that I... I I just, I, I don't think, I, I, I haven't seen this version of the Nuggets have a game that thoroughly disgusting. This is the first time. Yeah, the Nuggets just dropped their second game of the series, 123 to 98 um, to the Suns. Um, they shot a bunch of threes. We'll get into it all in the second part of the part of the pod. But <laughs> this, this episode, once a week, Jeff, we, I like to set aside some time to catch up with somebody who's connected to the Nuggets community or to the series that they're playing in and just talk about um, how they got into sports broadcasting or sports reporting or writing and specifically, you know, just learn more about them and figure out what does it take to get to where you've gotten to. You're hosting the Colorado Sports Guy podcast right now. What else are you doing? But not just what are you doing right now? How did you get here? How did I get here? Oh, my God. Uh, do you have a two hours? Because it's quite the long story. Um, I, I'll give you the briefest version that I could possibly get. I didn't. I, I had no intention of ever being in media. Uh, that wasn't on my radar. When If you would have talked to me growing up, I would have said I was going to be a rock star. Uh, that was 100% my intention. Wow. Um, I learned to play the guitar when I was 10, and I still play it. And uh, that was, I just wanted to be in, in, a, in a rock band, play guitar like Jimmy Page. Mm -hmm. And that was, that, was my, that was my vision. Of course, it obviously, uh, that only happens to once in a million uh, or less than that people. So... Right. Uh, but I did record an album when I was 21. What? Uh, yes, I, I recorded an album that is out of print. And uh, I, <laughs> I did, that was some, but I got to, got to get that kind of out of my system. And that was 1998, I think. Wow. Wait, and, what kind of music was this? uh think about like a cross between um george harrison and uh led zeppelin and uh, that sort of thing so it's like a combination of classic rock and nine it was it, it was it was recorded in the 90s so you can imagine how it, it was it sounded um <laughs> I'll have to find some recordings of it because I, I lost this my CD copy. 
Um, What's the name of it? It was called Not a Moment Too Soon. What? And I, I'm trying to, in fact, one of these, you just, good, good thing I just reminded me of myself of this, because I'm going to have to try to, to find that copy and uh, put it out there because it sucks, but it was, it was, uh, it was something that I, I did on my own. I recorded all the instruments by myself and it was great. It was a nice experience, but I kind of got that out of my system. So then about like, I, I put, I did that and then I moved back to Denver uh, in 2001 and then was kind of skating around. And then I started commenting on uh, firegeorgecarl.com and and pickaxe and roll and which was uh the sb nation site was uh pickaxe and roll and then they merged and became denver stiffs Mm -hmm. and uh i was one of the most eloquent and faithful commenters at the time and in about 2009 i think I, i i was talking to nate about this i don't nate timmons about this i'm my former co-writer at Denver Stiffs. I don't remember exactly when they brought me on, but it's 2009 or 2010, right around there. And then uh, that's how I got into it. And it was mostly because I was writing these eloquent, eloquently long comments on Denver Stiffs uh, that seemed to impress Andy Feinstein. And uh, that's how I got here. And then that's kind of led to there, you know, it's just, it kind of went from there. So it's been uh 12 years of doing this now it's insane to think about well you're giving you're gonna give commenters like a bad idea here jeff you know (laughs) longer comments on denver stiffs and then we're gonna have to be blocking people and all this stuff (laughs) well it was uh i believe it was gordon was a commenter gordon and zach and 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 ryan uh all originated as commenters, as I as I remember. Uh, Ryan was after I was no longer running the site. Um, he came in my last year when I was totally checked out uh, at Denver Stiffs, and I apologize to the readers of Denver Stiffs for that. But 2017, I was not quite there. Wait, uh, <laughs> what? I so 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 at one point you were also the big stiff. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, in fact, it's an uh, interesting story. Um, it was Andy, Nate, and I, uh, and we did the site by ourselves basically from 2009-ish to 2014-15, right around there. And then Nate Timmons suddenly got an offer from uh, a competing website and went there and andy and i were completely at a loss we didn't know what to do because nate timmons did all the site running so that's actually one of the reasons adam ended up running the site because he and i were andy and i were like we will just be the head cheese behind the guy who runs the does the editorial stuff so we were the andy and i were the quote unquote the proprietors of denver steps Wow. And uh, but he that we we were basically the the people behind the curtain and uh, essentially for anyone who's reading listening to this right now essentially just that what that meant was that he and I did basically nothing <laughs> we just had our names <laughs> we just had our names on the site but we had our names on the site all the way back to two thousand you know whatever when uh, we were going through this I mean uh, it was 
we we went through the entire melodrama on Denver Stiffs, which was still to this day the most insane time I've ever I've, I've ever experienced in the twelve years of doing this, or eleven or twelve years of doing this. Yeah. So, yeah. I can't imagine. That's actually why I originally wanted to have you on uh, the Chicken Nuggets Grilled was because. I mean, we've been trying to get on, get together over the course of this last finishing portion with against the Portland Trailblazers, and I mm-hmm. wanted to talk to you specifically because you could give, you know, all listeners and 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 all Nuggets fans a good perspective on just how bad it was when Melo left. Because mm-hmm. personally, I I'm only a Nuggets fan because of Carmelo Anthony, and so right. I feel like. I don't, I don't hold personally a grudge towards him for leaving. I think he had okay reasons to leave, but I wasn't there or, you know, like in the trenches, you were actually kind of getting some behind the scenes. You were um, covering the team at the time. So how bad was it really? Because as, as a, I mean, and even when he left, I was still, I don't even know what, what year did he leave? That was also Nick O'Hare's first year when the year he left. 2011 yeah i was still pretty young (laughs) so like i don't really (laughs) i I just remember loving him and then hating that he left being sad about it but not i wasn't like i didn't hate him ever so and i know a lot of nuggets fans really do i mean we heard the booze right like we know they're mad about it well let me let me throw throw this out there and i kind of talked about this on uh csg podcast uh, a while back i think i think i have never had anything against mellow not never at all i i, I like carmel martin carmelo said hi to me when i saw him when he came in with oklahoma city you know i i i've never had anything uh against mellow mellow was entitled to do whatever he wanted to do i've always felt that about players but what i didn't understand was why mellow didn't under why mellow didn't understand why people were booing him and that is where I I was was like not alone. Mellow Mellow's perspective has always been mellow centric, mm-hmm. and in that way I will criticize him because he couldn't look outside of himself and see the fact that he there was for it was a good it was from uh, the first article that Mark Kisla had I believe that was June or no, excuse me, July of 2010 to February of 2011 was absolute hell for Nuggets fans. And I, Mello's lack of understanding of why that upset people was like the crux of what was going on. To Mello, he's just making a business decision. You, you know, and, and I perfectly understand that. But Melo could never step outside of himself and understand why people didn't like it. It did get bad at one point. And here's the thing. Melo never responded well to booze. I, uh, it was a game in uh, January of 20, 2011, a month before he left, where uh, it was against New Orleans, where the fans were booing him really bad. Mm. And then he was yelling at the crowd. He was yelling at the crowd at Pepsi Center saying, boo that, boo that. And he was really upset that they were booing. He couldn't understand why they were doing it. And that's always been Mello's thing. He just can't, he just can't process that because in Mello's world, 
I'm doing it, whatever it takes to do when, you know, get through this at the moment. And then people are booing me and they, and he couldn't understand like, look, this entire fan base has been raked over the coals during this whole time. And I don't blame people for booing him. And I do not blame, blame Mello for leaving or anything like that. It's just was funny to me how bad, poorly he reacted to it. I, I, I just was really stunned by that. Yeah. And, and that was such a mellow reaction to that sort of thing. I anyway, I don't want to filibuster your podcast. I can go on and on. That's <laughs> why you're here, honestly. <laughs> so that you can tell us all the rich history, you know, because I do think that um, there's a generation of Nuggets fans who like, we were old enough to like know about mellow and kind of love the game, but not really understand the game as we would today at least for me right like I know that when I became a Nuggets fan and when I started watching the Nuggets I loved the game of basketball more than I loved the franchise of the Nuggets and I didn't know that much or was and I definitely wasn't as invested and I don't think most young fans are invested in like the whole business side or the whole team aspect of a franchise they you know young fans like players they like stars they like uh intensity and mellow brought all of that to to denver and that's kind mm-hmm. of and i remember hit you know you remember mellow you remember jr you remember ai like marcus mm-hmm. Campy, uh earl mm-hmm. quickens they were like it was a fun group of players and that's all i all i really remember is the excitement of like hey we're actually relevant like people right. know who the nuggets are um do you think Mello understands why people boo him now? No, mm-hmm. I, I'll be honest with you. I did. You, you could tell during that series, he just didn't, it wasn't coming in. And then he had the afterwards. He's, he's like, I did everything for this, you know, for this uh, city and all this stuff. He just couldn't understand it. And he still can't understand it because never Mello never bothered to make amends. I mean, he never, uh, he just in his mind it's uh he got to his uh he got to new york and then i think he made a mistake when he said that he'll go into the hall of fame as a as a nick even though he had far more success as a nugget mm-hmm. um when he said that he would do that it was like well you don't you didn't give a you know what about it and that that's always been Mello's case. Like I said, reiterating to me, I've never had anything against him. One of the reasons I think people were so attached to Mello is um, like from 1990 to not 2003, the Nuggets only had two winning seasons. No, excuse me, one winning season and one 500 season. <laughs> and then during that whole stretch. Wow. And he, when he came in in 2003, he was extremely hyped out of Syracuse. Should have gone number two, let's face it. Uh, the, the, the Detroit Pistons messed up. And, um, or he should have at least, I mean, um, there's an alternative history where the Nuggets selected Darko Milicic and continued down their path of being terrible for another five years. Let's, let's, that's a dark timeline, as the kids would say. Um, but, Mello kind of with the help of others it wasn't all him but it was mostly Mello dragged the franchise out of the doldrums and I think that is why people were so upset I think that is why fans booed I said fans booed because they Mello really did something good and I think Mello never really understood 
that part. I think he he understood that he had helping this moribund, you know, lifting this moribund franchise out. But the fact that he was that guy and he was the symbol of that. And then when he forced his way out, was basically demanding a trade. It was like, well, you're 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 pissing on the city at this point. And whether he intended that or not, I, and I don't think so at all. I don't think Mello has anything against the city of Denver at all. And I've said this over and over and over again. Mello has nothing against Denver. Um, Lala did, but you know, I, I think Lala's the the Lala thing was overblown. Um, I'll be quite honest with you. Um, she, yeah, didn't like living out here but she she didn't uh, eventually they got divorced when he was living in new york so i mean i don't necessarily think that it was going to be that the city they were living in was that as big a factor as people said it was just it is what it is and uh i could go on for ages about this i I saw too much of mellow i saw too much of mellow and it's just it's good that they're that that we got someone in Denver now who's kind of the, the new face. And I think uh, everyone should appreciate Nikola Jokic uh, and the time that it took uh, to get him and become what they are right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because Nikola really is like the ideal superstar. He's not like any of these other superstars in in a lot of ways on and off the court and um, with, I mean, what you're describing in Mellow is like almost like a lack of self-awareness or like emotional maturity or like he should know that like people are going to be upset. Yeah, should it roll off his back because he's he's never going to please everybody? Yeah, probably when you're a pro athlete, you should have that kind of ability to let things roll off your back and not worry about it and not let not to the point where you're screaming at the crowd, you know. Um, boo this or boo that so that trade was huge for Denver we get Wilson Chandler Raymond Felton Danilo Gallinari gosh Mozgov I mean that's a whole nother generation of guys that uh, fans like myself as a kid grew up with but it also like ended a really a really important and fun time for Nuggets fans like you said I I guess that's probably why I had never really because 2003 is like me heading into high school like I'm about to play some high school basketball you know well I'm in middle school at that point so (laughs) but you know what I mean like I'm just getting into basketball like it's actually Mm -hmm. competitive Mm -hmm. so I'm looking up to players and trying to figure out who who do I want to like model my game after but I'm really more about what does this superstar teach me and more about like my own internal basketball uh, mind and how do I help or how do I become a player like that? I never really, I guess as, as a player, maybe I didn't spend too much time worrying about, oh, well, he left us with crap or, or anything like that. I always definitely attributed a lot more to trades to like, well, why did the team even agree to that? Or why did, why did mm-hmm. the office give these people away? And I would always um, look to them, I guess, if I was going to blame somebody or play the blame game, but you also got to see those guys and Ty Lawson and, and experience a lot of really iconic members of this, the Nuggets franchise over the course of your time covering the Nuggets. Who do you think was like the best guy to cover that's not currently on this team? Oh man. Uh, Wilson. I loved Wilson Chandler. 
um wilson and i had a great uh ability to communicate with each other and uh wilson what i always appreciated about wilson chandler was you could tell wilson thought well beyond basketball uh, mason plumley was very similar there um mason plumley was really into art and he would he would talk for a long time if you got him in on some art i uh, art talking about some certain art displays in new york he'd start he would gush for a long time uh, that's just the way mason thought but the but wilson was very deep still is um a, a guy who if he trusted you he trusted you hmm. and it was hard to gain wilson's trust and there was there was just he he is a very introspective person and it's hard to be introspective and be a basketball player to be quite honest with you um but wilson was also very talented and the guy had just some horrendous luck with injuries kind of like callow to be quite honest with you his cohort for many years uh those two had the worst luck of injuries i'd ever seen and he managed to make a, a, a long career out of it and he gave back to his community gave back to detroit a detroit area and excuse me ann arbor a uh, big michigan guy uh just that was his home and he loved giving back to his community yeah and um or was it grand rapids he grew up in i think it was grand rapids um anyway he uh michigan was his place and he just identified with it and he would go back and he would give back and i i had such a great relationship with him I had a great relationship with ty lawson uh i never been more disappointed in my life than seeing what happened to ty lawson at the end of his time as a nuggets player um Ty was Ty was easy to communicate with. He was a good guy. Um, if you got him on the right mood someday, he'd talk and talk and talk. Um, Ty was just a, a, a good a good dude. And it, uh, first, I got some stories that I can't tell on this podcast, unfortunately. But I, <laughs> one of these days, one of these days, I'll probably re- reveal some stories. But he uh, it was great. I mean, the, the, I would say those two. Um, uh, I, I think those two are the ones that I, I, I constantly think about, about guys who are a pleasure to cover because they were great at interacting. And Will Barton's like that, but mm-hmm. Will, Will, Will knows what, I mean, I always say this, Will knows what he's doing because he's, he, he's very conscious that he, he, he knows what he's doing and he knows that we eat certain things up. Mm-hmm. And I always see that uh, Gary Harris got uh, good at that by the time he, by the time he left. Um, but I, I, but mostly it's just Ty Lawson and Wilson Chandler. I really, really enjoyed covering those two. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. And, and like the way that you're talking about Ty and, and Wilson, and Wilson Chandler, it's like, like you really had deep conversations with them about things that weren't basketball related. And like, mm-hmm. I don't really, I mean, maybe media has changed that much. And, and especially since COVID it has been affected, but we don't often get a chance to talk, you know, talk to these guys about anything right. but basketball. How did you have these conversations? Teach me your ways. Uh, well, you know, the biggest key, and I'll tell you this, and it's not anything, um, it's not any really huge secret, but it's, it's just you have to be there all the time. 
And uh, they, they, if you're there all the time, they at least know they, they, they trust you. They, they see you, they identify you. They said, though, this person is here uh, and, and they're less inclined to trust people who are not there all the time. Um, that's why certain, you know, columnists will not get good quotes from players because they don't trust the, per- the person who's asking the question. Um, you know, there's just it, it, Ben Hockman, uh, the old beat writer uh, for the Nuggets, used to be really good at getting guys to talk to him because um, Ben's really easygoing. Uh, I, as you know, from me, I am extremely easygoing. Uh, I don't have an agenda. I just, I, to be honest with you, I just want to talk to him. Yeah. And if you just treat them like human beings, they will respond to it. I mean, it, because uh, these guys are used to being treated like athletes yeah. and uh, people who are more talented than you and, there's a lot of sycophantism in a lot of aspects of their life coming up. Uh, mm-hmm. They're probably told you're great all the time. And a lot of times I'm sure that they don't get someone just talking to them like a, like a normal person. I will be honest with you. I don't have any such relationship with the people in the locker room right now um, because I'm not as round as much as I was five years ago. Yeah. Um, but being there is big key and, and getting them to trust you and get getting to the point where they say they, they know they can say something to you without it immediately appearing in you know print right. and then you ask them look can we get something on the record you know they, they'll still say okay then they'll identify it yeah um you know they won't go full rob, robot mode like gallo used to do um so it is it's that that really is it but i think i think being there and just treating them like human beings that's that's the that's the only thing that i would say because i think you know like i said it's it's a valuable thing to have a be able to have a conversation with people and have them just respect you because you're there and you're not gonna fuck them pardon my language (laughs) (laughs) because because the, the 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 screwing them in public and something you write is the for the, the surest thing the surest thing yeah yeah <laughs> yeah anyway they'll be pissed about it yeah i mean well i mean i think guys do read what you have to say and you got to be honest and you should be fair as well um but yeah i guess it's interesting because i'm just learning so much about being in the field of sports media and being mm-hmm. a woman in the field and stuff and it, i just think I'm learning so much about how differently we think as men and women in, in our sports media landscape. And I genuinely try not to talk, like even if I was gonna approach someone and say, talk about art with Mason Plumley, a totally appropriate conversation. I just would think as like, you know, I don't want anyone to think that I'm just here for, for a reason that isn't work. I don't want, you know, and I'd be so consumed with that worry and fear. and. I hope that someday it's not like that for women. I hope that we can feel like we can be there and that we can have a conversation mm-hmm. that, because I do think fans want to know that kind of stuff, you know, like I had no idea Mason Plumley liked art. I would have never gotten that impression from him, to be honest with you, but I'm definitely judging him by his, <laughs> you know, judging a book by its cover when I say that. And I'm, I'm yeah. surprised that you include Gary Harris in that because I do feel like he's he has gotten into a little bit of robot mode with Nuggets Media towards the end of his time here in Denver. Yeah. 
Well, I, 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 I'll say this. I mean, Gary, Gary, <laughs> were you around when Gary was first here? I don't, I don't think you had come to the Nuggets beat yet. Were you? Mm. 2014? No, no, no. I only started in 2019. All right. Gary, Gary didn't know how to talk. Mm. Um, he was very clipped, very short. Uh, Jamal, Jamal was that way. And Jamal can be, um, Oh, he can be short with media. He can be very bitchy. Um, but <laughs> I think Jamal, at least he's being honest. Yeah. And I, 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 I've always respected that. I mean, if you're going to be, you know, even if you're going to be short with the media, I, it doesn't bug me. So like with, you're talking about with women. Um, I, I want to come back to this for a second. I, do, I don't necessarily, at least now, think that is as big a deal as it was even 10 years ago. Uh, for these players, um, they're kind of used to it now because there's a lot more women uh, in locker rooms, even though there's not as many as there should be. I'll be honest with you. There needs to be a lot more women uh, covering these these uh, athletes in in whatever fashion uh, that they need to be there. I, I, I've always felt that. And the, uh, the best way that uh, guys can get more used to it is the fact that they, they don't they won't find just a a woman in the locker room and and invasion and i've never felt that with the nuggets there's been countless women coming through uh as reporters uh joe neeson did it mm-hmm. um you know yourself hey, uh lots of us katie wingy they, they just they're, they're fine with it yeah um and i think there's not that barrier all these players know that there's a, 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 it, they all they need to know is they trust you and they see you and they know you're going to be professional and that's it. Yeah. No, you know, and I, I want to correct something. I didn't mean the players feeling uh, intimidated or or like it would be an inappropriate conversation or that I wasn't staying on topic or, you know, being professional there. I think I'm scarred from PR teams, right? I've had mm. uh, interactions with different PR teams, not the Nuggets, Definitely not the Nuggets. Uh, their their team has been nothing but welcoming, and they continue to add women to to the media group of mm-hmm. who cover the team year after year, and diverse women as well. But I've had prior to coming to covering the Nuggets, I've had encounters with PR teams that have genuinely scarred me for life. Like I'm afraid to have a conversation about someone's kids because. That might mean that I'm like interested in them in a way that's not appropriate or not business professional. And I've gotten in trouble for it with other PR teams because I was polite. Like I, a player had their, their daughters there and I was kind to the little girls and I was in trouble. So um, I think I'm hard yeah. from PR staff feeling like, you know, that making it seem like I'm intruding or invading a place where you're absolutely right. Women should be covering. And, and, it's weird, Jeff, like in my mind, I always thought like when I first got into the field, like maybe I should just be covering women's basketball since I'm a girl, that would make sense. And that's just such a terrible mindset to go in with it. Right. Because like, if you know basketball, you know, basketball, it doesn't really matter who's on the court. Like you don't, you don't need to like, like, I, I mean, it's easy for me to say because I, 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 you know, I, I am the least threatening person on the planet and I have that aura about me. So it's very easy for me to pe- for, for uh, people to talk to me, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I think as I can't relate to 
the, the being being a woman aspect of it and and i would never try to speak to that the only thing i could say is just on a general human level most people just want to know that they can talk to you and be in your trustworthy yeah and i think particularly now particularly now it is it is a lot i'm not saying it's easy but it's easier i guess um and I'm not particularly, like I said, I got most of my conversations uh, um, not in the scrums. I hate, I hate the scrums. I'll be honest with you. I can't, I'm short. I can't hear everything. These players look at you and they're like, this guy's a footstool because I'm, you know, five foot six. And they, they, they feel like they're talking to a midget. <laughs> and uh, I get it. And, but when you get them away from that situation, it's where I've always thrived. Because um, yelling questions in a scrum is just, it's just tedious to me. It's tedious. And I think that's a lot of what, uh, what uh, Naomi, Naomi Osaka was talking about mm. when she pulled out of the French Open. It is, it is, press conferences tend to be inanity. It tends to be tends to be not something that you will get great quotes from. I do not like Michael Malone post-game pressers. Um, he is he is too emotional, and he gets the same goddamn question every time. I mean, there's great guys that are trying to get great questions. And in fact, I think he's done better with these Zoom calls. I'll be quite honest with you. He's done better on these Zoom calls than he does on the usual scrums. Um, but I don't think they produce anything. Uh, Michael Malone, after practice, when there's less media there, has been always been perfecto to me. That's the best Michael Malone quotes I ever got. But this, it's not the he doesn't have people shouting stuff at him, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that is where you get the better stuff. And and uh, I went on a tangent here, but uh, that's, no, <laughs> that's you're right. Yeah, because after a game too, he hasn't even had a chance to evaluate the game. He hasn't had a chance to look at film. He's not really sure what, you know, what to say to, he's going to give you like his first reaction, but he's still going to look at film and, and evaluate and have a better answer for you later. So. to know I, I've given you a little bit of history as far as like I became a fan when I when Mello came onto the map onto the scene for Denver that's really what ignited my fandom as a Nugget mm -hmm. fan at what point in your journey along you know little Jeffrey Morton <laughs> to now did you become a Nuggets fan like what player did that for you uh I remember uh, becoming a Nuggets fan during their 87-88 Nuggets season. They won 54 games that year. Um, and it was Alex English um, who was my gateway into loving the Denver Nuggets. And I'll be honest with you, it's a, it's a love that's never stopped. I go in and out of like levels of rabidness. 
um, like, uh, like uh, there were times in the late nineties, I could seriously, it was like, why am I watching this team? Um, but, uh, yeah, really was Alex English, but I, and, and I'll never forget it. I, I've told this story before, but it's, it's so ridiculous. I'll tell you this. I uh, went to see the Nuggets versus the Timberwolves in 1988. Uh, I went with my stepfather, uh, Dave, and we sat, it was at McNichols Arena, and we sat two rows from the top where things smelled like piss. And it was the cheap seats, so to speak. And um, we made our way down to the, 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 the this is... <laughs> This will tell you the difference in times, okay? Uh, back then, um, it was a little easier to walk down to the lower level if you had a ticket. And because that's just the way security was in the late 80s. Yeah. And I made my way to the, the uh, there, there wasn't a rope line, but the Nuggets would, would leave through, uh, you know, their, their exit front into the locker room was right next to their bench. And uh, I made my way down there and it was a night where the nuggets were giving away uh, uh, rainbow colored mini balls. So I had a mini ball and I, I, I said, Mr. English, can you, you know, sign this for me? And he said, sure. And he asked for a felt pen and he, you know, signed Alex English number two on it. And I was like, Oh, I was so thrilled. Um, so I brought it back to my house and, you know, you know how kids are. You know, I started, I had a, I had a little mini hoop in my, in my bedroom and I would dribble the ball and like, Oh, wait a minute. What am I doing? Uh, this is a valuable thing. It's signed by Alex English. Right. Right. And I didn't really consciously have that thought, but it was there. So anyway, I set it aside. I ended up setting it aside because my mom told me to, well, I come to find out because we moved house in 1993 or something like that. And I was looking for it one day and it had deflated. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't done anything with it. So it had deflated. <laughs> and um, we moved house and I found out that my mom had thrown it away. <laughs> my goodness. That's almost, a, that's almost as bad as my mom throwing away my Bo Jackson mitt. No, that's, that's, that's far worse. It's far worse, that's, but it's almost as bad. Alex, <laughs> I mean, come on. What is up yes. with moms? Yeah. No, the Bo Jackson thing, I would, I would be uh, beside myself. Yeah. She's like, <laughs> oh, I gave it to Goodwill. I'm like, mom, some really, really lucky person is going to be rich now. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I can't even imagine yours was, yours was far worse than mine. I, that, but the, 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 the mini ball at least wasn't, wasn't even, you know, inflated it was it was just a, <laughs> it would have been five years and it was a flat piece of rubber but uh my fandom was sealed with the 93 94 nuggets i was 16 years old and that was my that's my team that is uh, that people don't understand this and i i i just i i gotta i i tell people you are your fandom is formed when you're in your early teens Mm-hmm. And Dan Issel became the coach in 92. And uh, I was 14. And the 92 93 team was fun as heck. And then they, in 93 94, they uh, made, become the first ever 
eight seed to beat a uh, or eight seed to beat a one seed. And that was it. That was it for me. That was my team. And that sealed it. I was already a rabid Nuggets fan, but the 93, 94 team was the team that just made it all like perfect for me. And then I spent the rest of that decade, you know, wondering why I was, I was a Nuggets fan, but, but the 93, 94 team is the one that really sealed the deal for me. And Lafonso Ellis, by the way, that's my all time favorite Nuggets player. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that 94-93 team, you also got to see uh, Mohamed Abdul-Raouf. Uh, Did you, was that the year that he chose to to not participate in the anthem? No, that was uh, 90, the 95-96 season. That was his last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember it was really weird because he had been, not been standing all season. Uh, and someone, I think there was a media member who discovered it in like March of 96 year I graduated high school and uh, so they discovered it and then it just unleashed hell on him. That poor guy, he went through, that man went through just tons of crap. Yeah. Uh, it was the nineties. It was a different time, but there was no excuse. Uh, there was some shit radio DJs that went over and, and said, went to his mosque and were playing, I forget what music they were blasting out at the mosque. Um, it, it was just bad. It was bad. And, and, and to this day, I think he still has ill feelings about the city of Denver. And I don't blame him, basically, for what happened. Yeah. And uh, he just didn't, he just did not uh, get, have a good time. And David Stern, I don't think, treated him well. But it was it was the mid '90s, and it was a, like I said, it was a different time. That people had a different mentality back then. But I, I that's not an excuse. The guy deserved better. Once again, I've I've taken I've taken your question and gone on a completely different tangent than you were intending. I no. apologize. No, I mean that's that was exactly what I was interested in knowing. You remembered what what that was like, and was it anything like what Kaepernick experienced? Because a lot of people don't know that story about. Abdul Rauf and I think it's just kind of recently been um, surfacing that you know Cap wasn't the first person to say I don't want to do you know stand for a flag that doesn't necessarily represent what it does to some of you as it does to me and I mean Cap was obviously trying to protest police brutality specifically but I think for Abdul Rauf it was more like it's great that you believe in this or that you want to stand for this. I don't think everyone should. And it, it definitely was a different time. And yet we still stand today there with a lot of people who still feel like that was about the flag. And it's, it's just very interesting. Um, I'm pretty sure Abdul Rauf like left the NBA. He still plays overseas and stuff. And he like in his final seasons overseas, like did, amazing numbers and was a great athlete still to for a long time after he left the NBA but well he was Steph Curry he was he was Steph Curry they they had remarkably similar shooting form and I always wondered and and Curry kind of like oh I kind of see it I mean I remember someone asked him about it Mm -hmm. and it was kind of a dismissive thing but uh I have no doubt that Del Del Curry who played in the league with uh Mahmoud Abdul-Aruf uh, AKA Chris Jackson. Um, I know for a fact 
that Del Curry, who was a great shooter himself, yeah, I have no, I have no doubt that he and his sons are smaller than him, and I have no doubt that that made an impact on him, and he imparted whatever Mahmoud was doing at the time to that. His pump fake up and under it was just beautiful, and uh, really didn't get his just desserts as far as someone who uh, pioneered a certain way of playing the game in, a, in an era that was extremely difficult to do what he was doing. Uh, it, it, that just the rules were not conducive. The, the hand check was still there. And it, it was just a lot more difficult. You could, you could actually touch people on the, on the perimeter and they wouldn't call a foul. So. Yeah. <laughs> right. He probably like laughs at James Harden, right? He's watching right. at home and he's like, Oh my God, I should have been an all-star. I should have been the MVP <laughs> doing what he was doing at the time. Compared to what right. you guys do now. Right. <laughs> yeah, he had a great shot and a, an incredible form. I wish we could have seen him really in his prime because he leave, ends up leaving the NBA before that really. And we don't really get to see what he fully develops into, at least at that competitive NBA level. Um, at that time, who was like the Nuggets' biggest rival? Like at, over the course of history, I, as far as I know, right, my little short life, has been our rival has been like the Blazers, I guess, recently. And then before that, it was the Jazz. And we always hate the Lakers, but I don't know that we really have you can have rivals when you're never good. And we've only recently been good. Well, I look, I look at it this way the, 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 the Nuggets' main rival has always been since about 1980 something, uh, the Utah Jazz. Uh, and it, and I always personally, I'll, I'll just put this out there. Never liked the jazz. Um, <laughs> they, in the nineties, they were the dirtiest team. They were the dirtiest team. What? John Stockton would, John Stockton would run up under you. Uh, there have been countless turned ankles because John Stockton would basically put his, put his foot under their foot, do the old Bruce Bowen thing and uh get away with it they would set back picks right into your kidney it was just they were they were a dirty effing team very good but dirty as hell yeah. and it was so frustrating watching them that 94 series when the nuggets got down 03 and then came back all the way to tie the series at three games apiece one of the one of the more great lost series in nba history uh, in the second round and they came back, they came all the way back tight. And I'll never forget game six, that final game, the Nuggets won that series watching Jeff Hornacek, Hornacek set back screens on uh, uh, Bryant stiff. And you could see him like basically kneeing stiff in the crotch Oh, God. And I would, I'll never forget. So angry. I'm, I'm like, I'm like 16 years old and I'm s throwing stuff at the TV, you know, <laughs> you sons <laughs> of bitches, <laughs> bastards, you know, screaming at the, at the TV, but that's, that's who the jazz were. So that for me, it was always the jazz. But if you ask your common Nuggets fan, they'll say the Lakers. Right. Which I think is like a very modern day thing like everyone in the west hates the lakers so i feel right. like any 
unless you're a Lakers fan, you're probably saying the Lakers, which probably gives the Lakers more clout than we really want to give the Lakers if we hate them. Well, the, the Lakers have beaten the Nuggets uh, how many times in the playoffs? Let's see. One, two, three. It's, I mean. It's five, six times? Yeah, it's usually. Seven times. Point. <laughs> Seven times. They've never beaten the Lakers in a, in a playoff series. And three times in the Western Conference Finals. <laughs> Great. Thank you for that history, Jeff. Just cut me. <laughs> it's good times yes right which is part of what the whole mellow thing was about right he wanted to find he wanted somebody by his side who could fight against Bynum when he was on the Lakers yes that was his big thing he wanted he wanted a big man to counter Bynum and, and the interesting thing about that was that the Lakers got Ron, uh, Ron Artest slash Meta World Peace uh, at the time. I think he was Ron Artest at the time, um, specifically to guard Mello. That's the sole reason they, they, they got him. Um, and it was a tip of the cap to how good Mello was in that Western Conference Finals. Uh, well, he was good until the last game and a half um but it was it was that's why and the nuggets didn't counter bynum which was their biggest weakness on the inside and uh that was sowing the seeds of his departure 100 percent. yeah it's it, it's like even to the core of some of our greatest players the lakers live rent free and it's horrible <laughs> It's, if there wasn't so many Lakers fans all over, it wouldn't be so annoying. But there's so many Lakers fans. <laughs> They're just everywhere, like cockroaches. <laughs> yeah, and not the kind of roaches we like here in Denver. No. <laughs> I could use one of those kind of roaches after the loss we had tonight. Um, <laughs> as, we, as we break into this kind of second part of the, the pod and, and wrap up the, the pod for the evening, I'm just interested to know, you know, were you always a Jokic fan? Like, how long did it take you to be convinced that this guy could play and be, I mean, and did you know he was going to be an MVP? No. Um, I, I'll be honest, I did not know that. I uh, the story I always tell is that uh, at draft night, I'm in the lounge. I had no idea he had been drafted. Uh, Nate was paying attention. I was talking to Adam Kinney, and I had no idea that the Nuggets had drafted someone. And Timmons had to inform me that they, they drafted him, and he was writing this thing for Stiffs. And then we do the presser afterwards in the in the in the old lounge with the with the two entrances, and Connolly. We get done with the press conference, and no one had asked him a question about Jokic. Oh my god! And he looks down, and there. And let me tell you something: there weren't a lot of people there. This was uh, after the first uh, Shaw year, and people were to say dismayed would be an understatement. Mm -hmm. 
Tim, Tim uh, puts on his coat, looks down, straightens his coat, looks down at me. Specifically, he was like looking daggers into me. And he says, no one's going to ask a question about Jokic? And, or uh, yeah, something like that. Was, yeah, Nikola is what he said. And I looked at him, he said, I, I went up to the table as he was, and I said, like, I got to be honest with you, I don't know anything about the guy. Oh. I said, can you tell me about him and stuff like that? He says, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you. I'll tell you later. We'll, 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 you and I will talk. And I got information later, but I had no clue. And I'll be honest with you. I was very late on the Jokic thing. I didn't really become a believer until really late in 2017. Mm. Um, I was always convinced that he was, a, <clears throat> if you would have had, talked to me in 2010, I would have told you that he was a baby. Mm-hmm. And his reactions to things was poor. He uh, was too emotional. And then I didn't think he cared enough. And I was wrong. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I fully, fully, fully take 100% uh, um, credit, not credit, but like blame for being wrong because it, it's, it's, I was wrong. I, there was just no, no doubt about that. I was completely wrong. And there was no way, if you would have talked to Jeff in 2014, that I would have had any clue that Nikola Jokic, pink uniform wearing Nikola Jokic, because Nate Timmons had to show me this video that Kalen Daremo uh, had on from Marembo Mining, Mining Company uh, of pink uniformed uh, uh, Nikola Jokic playing basketball. <laughs> I had no clue. I, 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 I was like, wow, this guy's, that, that's a, what a weird league. And uh, he ends up being a superstar. Fuck. I mean, I, I, how would I have known? And look, I wanted the Nuggets to draft Mario Hazonia in 2015. Clearly, my ability to scout talent is off and terrible. <laughs> so uh, no one should come to me for scouting or the ability to find a superstar. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how, how your front office career is going to go, Jeff. <laughs> Poorly. Poorly, probably. um, I also was not on the Nikola Jokic train quickly or or one of the first for sure. I was still like 2018. I was still critical of him. I thought that I, I agree with you about his reactions. I thought he was he complained a lot, you know, about with the refs. He wasn't very in control of his emotional maturity during the game. Um, he and it wasn't like he was emotional in the right way, even, you know, it was just complaining because he felt like he should, I don't know, get, be given a foul call. And now a lot of people criticize him for that. Even to this day, um, I think it's very different now. He, he does not complain nearly as much as he used to, which right. probably makes some people laugh out there. <laughs> <who> <laughs> think he complains too much right now. But I was late to the Nikola Jokic train. I remember I was on the draft for 2018, doing a live show for the draft at a at a bar here in town, and and somebody asked me, "Well, what are your thoughts on Nikola Jokic? Do you think they'll build a team around him?" And I was just like, "I honestly can't, still can't see how that's going to work." Uh, he's completely proven me wrong too, so we can all be wrong. But he was <laughs> so introduced in the draft as a. Uh, Chalupa or a burrito? Quesarito. Quesarito. 
So um, I don't know how anyone could have known about Nikola Jokic when that's the kind of coverage he was getting at that point. Well, I, Jenna, I, 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 this is how clueless I was. I had no idea there was a Taco Bell commercial going on. I, 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 like, I, it was the second round, and I knew there was a pick coming up, and it came up fast, as I remember. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I just was, I, I mentioned something to Kenny. And he and I were gabbing a bit, and then Nate like hits me and says, "Oh, they Nuggets have drafted this guy from Serbia." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, all right, like, cool." <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, I still, I still was like, "Oh, you know, they they just drafted Nurkic, and they drafted Gary Harris." Mm-hmm. That and then my, I was telling someone uh, a couple of days ago my memory of uh, that night other than, you know, obviously the Jokic stuff is that Nurkic did a call with us after the draft. He could barely speak any English, but he was super excited, super excited. He was telling us how much he loved Kobe. Uh, Kobe was his favorite player and he was super, super, super excited. I mean, you, you could just feel it through Mm -hmm. the phone, how much he desperately wanted to, to do it. Uh, he just was he was ready and it was so it was interesting contrast to the uh the Nurkic that we saw a couple years later yeah. but he uh yeah he was so happy oh my god uh, that's my that's my big memory is that Nurkic being super happy and not being able to speak English <laughs> yeah well ironically my only draft that we got to do in person with like on on site for the Nuggets was that 2019. It might have been what the year Bull Bull was. Uh, was that 2019? When yeah, it was 2019. Drafted, yeah. So it would have been 2019. And we were sitting in the room, similar to what you're describing. And I was very much not paying attention because the Nuggets <laughs> definitely not, not you know, not really high in the draft. They weren't thinking about taking it. They didn't. We didn't think they were going to make any sort of move or anything to get a get anybody and opposite of what you experienced we also did a call with bull bull after <laughs> and bull was on speakerphone um and we spoke to conley first and then and bull was not excited in any way he was like pretty upset <laughs> he did not seem that <laughs> to be drafted in the position he was drafted in uh, obviously he dropped more than he wanted to and stuff but ironically you know you He's drafted higher than Nikola Jokic, and I don't think he's going to pan out to be anywhere near this player. Nikola Jokic ends up being. Oh. There was so much hype around, and so many questions yeah. around Bobo, and oh my gosh, so much excitement, and yet he, you know, isn't wasn't excited about being. He he dropped to the back half of the second round. I mean, I think he was close to the end, yeah. and. He and it was largely because he of health reasons with him. And uh, as that's my memory. And then I talked to some people he went to college with uh, some some of the people around them. And that was basically the things like it's the it's the feet, mm-hmm. it's the legs. And we're then, you know, NBA scouts got the whole thing. So we ended up falling. Yeah. But uh, my impression of Bull Bull is that he just doesn't have the desire. Yeah. He could be a lot better. He's got, he's got so much skill. 
Yeah. But he just, he just, the, the desire is not, I, I, you get the feeling that he just wants it handed to him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just not going to happen. I spoke with Jake Fisher on the, on this podcast a few weeks ago, and he was saying that there was also some, uh, during Bulls draft, some rumors out there that he just kind of wanted the fame, but didn't want the, didn't really want to work for it. He was already kind of Instagram famous. He already was, he has a lot of fame for somebody who's done very little in the sport of basketball. Um, and I do think he has a lot more talent than he's taking advantage of, unfortunately, but. Well, well it's, it, it, it frustrates me that Nuggets fans like ch- chant for him all the time because I get it. I get it. He's the, the, he's the shiny object. It's like the backup quarterback thing. New MPJ. Yeah. But you know, MPJ has a lot more to his package <laughs> that Bull does. And Bull at this point, I mean, like the last time he was in there, I saw him, it was at the end of the regular season. It was almost like he was, he didn't take a shot. He looked like he didn't want to be out there. And it was really disappointing, Jenna. It was, it was extremely disappointing to see I, either he was dispirited or didn't care. That's what it looked like to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, almost as disappointing as this loss tonight, Jenna. Oh, God. <laughs> um, it was pretty rough. I, I don't know if it like Malone really ripped the team afterwards. He had a lot of negative things to say as we've talked about. He's not great after a, a loss where <laughs> right. he hasn't got a chance to review film and everything. His, his quotes are very much emotional and off the cuff of what he's feeling in that moment. And he did comment about um, just that guys were missing shots and then sulking and not really having good, um, body language, I think was the word he used and Mm -hmm. their asses kicked. And I really feel like he was talking about MPJ. Do Mm. you have any insight for Nuggets fans on, on the Malone MPJ relationship? Because they say they like each other and yet I've seen him, I've seen Malone walk back to the bench and, and call MPJ some names and throw his paper and pencil because he's pissed at him for taking a selfish shot. So what do you know about their relationship and, and how frustrated do you, how much do you think tonight was at least Malone's post-game comments? How much do you think were directed at MPJ? And maybe a little bit. Um, uh, obviously he had the most obviously bad game, but no one had a good game other than Jokic. And even Jokic was kind of like, eh, yeah. you know, he was scoring because he's the only one who could have scored, but he didn't exactly have a great game. He didn't. It was a collective effort. Um, Mike, I'll, I'll say this about Mike. Um, he does frustrate Malone. Uh, but if it wasn't for Mike's dad, this relationship would probably be a lot worse mm-hmm. than it is. Um, Mike's, from what I understand, Mike's dad is a very positive influence as far as this goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think that part, if that dynamic wasn't there, it'd probably be a lot more fractious than it is. Um, but one thing is Mike does, does respond well to uh, bad games like this. Yeah. Um, 
he does come back and bounce back really well. I think Malone's frustration probably stems from uh, a lot of different areas, but I'll say more than anything, I don't think the Nuggets handled the crowd well. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I don't think, and I think it's a, a large part of why the body language was so bad is that they haven't really had to deal with the packed crowd for over a year. Yeah. And, you know, it's not as if Phoenix has the best home court advantage, but like, look, when you, you have spent 15 months, not basically not having a crowd and then getting a little bit of one, uh, obviously ball arena, they've had what, 10,000 people there and it's going to be full capacity on, uh, Friday. Right. Full ish, I should say. So obviously that's going to be, you know, good for them. And then that's, that'll be the first time the Suns have ever faced a crowd like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the Lakers, uh, California, they don't have, they're, they're still very restricted. So there was barely anyone in Staples Center. Mm -hmm. And kind of like the Nuggets with the Blazers, the Blazers, I think had 8,000, maybe, um, it wasn't exactly a boisterous crowd, but Phoenix was a capacity crowd and they were, they were contributing to the momentum. And I don't think the Nuggets, and this is the part where I'll criticize them. I don't think they've had, they handled it well. I don't think they handled the crowd well. And I think if they're going to let the crowd affect them for two straight games, that tells me that they are riding on a knife edge right now. Yeah. And, and they're missing Jamal. They don't have room for error, you know? Yeah. And I think Coach Malone will even spoke to it a little bit, just even when he was talking about Nicola winning the MVP, he said, you know, Nicola's never going to tell you he's exhausted, but he's physically and mentally exhausted at this point. He mm-hmm. played some of the most minutes, like if you combine over the last three years, because they take every series to seven lovely games, and they end up playing a lot of minutes and Nicola hasn't missed a game since 2017. Right. I, I, it's kind of like, I'm going to throw this game out. They're down 0-2, but Phoenix hasn't won in Denver. You know, series doesn't start until the road team wins a game, Mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Um, Until you get to a game seven, obviously, and then that's the, the home team has the advantage there. But if the Nuggets come back and they show better and they win game three, and then they win game four, uh, then it's back to square one. It's the best of three. Um, and they just have to start by winning game three, and they got to start by playing better. And <clears throat> playing better to an extent that it's not the shots. It's not – and this is why I, I, like, won't go too far on the MPJ thing. Everyone was missing shots, yeah. literally – Everyone on the Nuggets was missing shots. Yeah. And Austin Rivers' body language was not helping. Uh, fouling De- Devin Booker, like, and it was a legit foul, and then just spending the next five minutes yelling at the ref. Um, none of that helps. And no one had a good night. No one came out of this unscathed. And they got to do some soul searching before they come back in. Well, maybe Barton, but Barton, uh, you know, had the pleasure of only playing, what was it, 12, 13 minutes in the game? <laughs> <So>. right. <laughs> yeah, minutes restriction. 
Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, sometimes I think of Nicola, even when he does complain to refs, being a little bit more engaged. Like tonight, you didn't even see him complain maybe till the third quarter. You didn't see him. He, there was a, definitely some calls that were missed in that fir- the first three quarters. And you didn't right. see him say anything about that until deeper into the third. And I thought that even indicated just how detached they seemed tonight. Uh, the bench, you looked over and it's like Jamal Murray isn't hyping up the guys or cheering on the guys. He's slumped in his chair, icing right. his ACL, you know, like there was a lot of different people on the court that were, that had some not so great body language, <laughs> except for Felipe, who was behind the bench flexing every time anyone did anything. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. count on Felipe <laughs> for sure. Uh, biggest Nuggets cheerleader out there for them and strength and conditioning coach who Nicola, you know, gave credit to his MVP season to. So right. he's an important part of this team for sure. But uh, I would say like too, they stopped running the pick and roll because the Suns were just switching, you know, they were kind of zoning and then it was an automatic switch. And so they stopped mm-hmm. pick and roll. They start shooting a bunch of threes. They're not hitting any threes. Nobody's hitting anything except for random uncle Paul in the middle mm-hmm. of the end of like, a <laughs> that doesn't matter. We're already down by a lot and they can't really generate anything else. They start to drive to the basket and that gets them a little bit more, um, opportunities at the line but it was too little too late or a lot too late once they started doing that in the fourth so hopefully after film coming home they've been on the road you know this whole week uh and they've been a pretty good road team so I thought they'd get one in Phoenix but hopefully you're right and they get one on the um they get one at home or get two at home to even this thing back up I agree with you. It's kind of one of, it reminded me a lot of Portland game four from last series, just everything went Portland's way. And it was kind of, it was the bad Jokic game aside from Dame also getting not playing great, but everything else went Portland's way. And it was kind of like, okay, well that happened, but doesn't matter because we have Nikola Jokic and he'll come back. He hasn't really looked himself though in these first two games against me he he hasn't and has literally nothing to do with deandre eight because the Jokic is scoring on Aiton a lot uh i just think he's he he looks not dispirited he just looks lethargic mm. and i think the lethargy is starting to show the guy's logged a ton of minutes and this series is every other every other day yeah and i i mean Jokic doesn't like actually likes playing every other day, but I, I think it's taking its toll on him, Jenna. I think it's finally, finally, all those minutes are like, it's becoming a weight that's too big to bear. When you add in Jamal not being there, yeah, it's just too much. But I'll tell you this, I, I, have, no, I have no doubt the Nuggets will play 30 times better in game three, and they'll probably win. I, I, this Phoenix team is good, uh, but they once again they need to face the same adversity the Nuggets did, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how they respond to a crowd that's full capacity against them, and we'll see how they react emotionally. Because I'm telling you, this is a huge factor, huge factor in these series, and uh, I'm not used to that in NBA games outside of like Oklahoma City and uh, 
the old Oracle arena. But I, I think that is a more, a, a larger factor than people are willing to admit right now. Yeah. Well, and one thing that I think the biggest part of missing Jamal is that Jamal thrives off of like the negative noise, you know, he's right. and he, he's like, Oh, that's exactly what I needed. And he goes off. That's kind of the same as Devin Booker has that same sort of like, inner will like I want to piss off the, the crowd even more so hopefully that doesn't happen on on Friday <laughs> you're right you heard it here first you guys Jeff predicted game three a win in Denver on Friday Jeff it's been a pleasure I could seriously sit here and talk to you for like hours about Nuggets history and different uh, stories like I keep looking at the clock like okay I gotta get him out of here yeah. <laughs> here and talk about mellow for two hours and I'd yeah. be like Oh, it's 2 a.m. So uh, <laughs> I appreciate you coming on. You have to come on again so we can talk. Absolutely. Um, but it, it's been great just getting to know everything about or a little bit about how you became a Nuggets fan and, and have everything you've done since then. Um, any advice you give to people like myself, you know, who are we want to break into the sports world. We're interested in breaking into the sports world. You said earlier you got to be there all the time, but in a pandemic, that's really not been possible <laughs> right. recently. Any, any advice you give to aspiring sports journalists? Uh, be, be first to be above all, be professional. But in the, the second part of that is be true to you because, uh, because authenticity is, is confidence and confidence means that, you will be doing your job right. And I think if there's anything, anyone who's an inspiring journalist is going to like look at this and say, well, everyone writes, everyone does this, what's going to set me apart? Mm -hmm. The thing that's going to set you apart is identifying what you're good at uh, within the realm of covering the Denver Nuggets, doing it to the best damn way that you could possibly do it. Yeah. And in that way, you will always be true to what you are. You're, you are true to who you are and what you do best. And there ain't nothing better than that. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks for being on. Mm -hmm. And hopefully your words will, you know, ring in the ears of, of Nuggets fans and future, future Stiffs writers, right? <laughs> right, right. Future commenters, right. Or current comment. <laughs> or current commenters. <laughs> Some of, uh, there's like bull bulls lady or something commenter you not you this does not apply to you <laughs> I, I, I'm not familiar with the commenters anymore but uh, uh, hopefully is man car still there and I don't, uh, I don't know man car but they like you know they change their names around try to switch it up so that we can't tell who's commenting some of the uh, uh, when you post this I'll have to go visit and see who comments <laughs> will do <laughs> Thanks again, Jeff.